O Lord, our Lord, we praise you. We love you because you have first loved us. And we confess that if it were not for your love for us, God, we would deny you still to this day. But by your great mercy, you have opened our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and opened our ears to hear marvelous things from your word. Because of all that you have done, we come to honor you this morning. Father, we are a stubborn, foolish people. We know that you hold the keys of life, yet we settle for trivial things and are easily distracted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We are short-sighted, and our eyes are quick to turn from you and look to other things to be our source of joy uh, and hope and peace. God, we confess to you, these things will never satisfy. Only you can truly satisfy our souls. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet you hear our prayers And so we come before you to pray this morning. Father, heal our land. Turn men and women away from wickedness and draw them unto saving faith in you. We lift up the governing authorities and pray that you might give them wisdom, that they might govern wisely, and that we might live a quiet life, if possible, in obedience to your word. We ask that you might raise up godly leaders as well, who will seek you and your ways. We ask for protection from those who set themselves up as enemies of God, and we pray, as you tell us to, that you might grant them true repentance and true faith. We ask for those who cannot be with us this morning, that you might, they might soon be able to join with us again, that with one voice, together, we might praise you. And Lord, I ask you to use Reconciled Church for your glory and the advancement of the gospel. Let us to seek to live godly lives that others might ask questions about our faith. And when they do, give us the courage to speak the truth faithfully in love. We want to stand before you one day and hear these words. My good and faithful servant, well done. Help us to do well by you this morning. For it is in Jesus' precious name that we pray all these things. Amen. By the way, guys, I always forget something every week. If I have not dismissed you yet, and you're an older kid, uh, you are welcome. We, I want to dismiss you to our Bible studies. Uh, you don't always have to sit through my long prayer, but every once in a while I forget to dismiss you beforehand, and you have to do it. So thank you guys for your patience. All right, guys, if you have a Bible, please open to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be there in a second. If you have one of our uh, blue Bibles from back there, it's on page 572. But before we do that, let me kind of introduce the idea to you. The year of our Lord, 1982. The year I was born. The world marveled at a remarkable new technology. This thing that had the world in awe was nothing less than a series of workout videos that you could do at home so long as you had a VHS or a Betamax player. And specifically, by the way, if I said Betamax, and you have no clue what that is, you were probably born in 1990 or later. That's okay. Specifically, a series of workout tapes by actress Jane Fonda popularized a a statement which nowadays has become synonymous with exercise. No pain, no gain, right? 
Now, one of the things you may not have realized is that, ironically, she did not come up with this catchphrase. This is actually a catchphrase that comes up kind of over and over again every uh, couple hundred years or so. Uh, For example, 200 years prior to a fellow who I can guarantee you has never done a sit-up in his life, Benjamin Franklin, used the term in in his magazine, Poor Richard's Almanac, when he used it as an economics lesson. No pains, no gains. However, the earliest form of this phrase can actually be traced back to a rabbi in the second century who originally phrased it this way. According to the pain is the gain. By this, he intended that uh, he didn't intend this as fitness advice or economics advice, uh, but as a spiritual truth that in gaining the blessing that comes with God's commands, you must also accept that pain comes with obeying those commands. This, I believe, is accurate. Well, I believe they're all accurate to some extent, but none of you guys came here to hear me give exercise advice. So I believe that the spiritual truth is absolutely true. And the meaning of it is something that I believe many Christians have lost sight of. You see, I'm convinced that many of us, myself included at times, have gotten the idea that if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, people will naturally like you. I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. Jesus said, hey, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So we are, spo- we are commanded and all about the idea of loving people. So you would think, after all, who would hate someone who just loves people? This, however, is a little bit short-sighted. It's overly simplistic. And it, gives a mi- it, it misses a big part of the Bible and the Christian faith. Namely, this guy named Jesus you may have heard of. You see, if you think about it, no one loved God and loved people more so than Jesus. No one even came close. He is the perfect example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. However, if you've never read the the Bible, spoilers, it didn't work out terribly well at first. Same people Jesus came to love also brutally murdered him and slandered him. See, I found that often people are, are, tend to be all in on following Jesus until they find out it actually gets difficult. But what's funny is it's not like we, we should be unaware of this. After all, Jesus himself told us this. He taught his disciples this. Let me give you an example. Jesus once told a story, uh, or a parable as the Bible calls it, where he compared the way people respond to his message like seeds scattered on different soil. And one such group of people he described this way. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Sounds crazy if you think about it, right? Jesus comes promising life everlasting, and yet people who have heard the message, have understood the message, and have rejoiced in the message, give up when pain comes along with it. And if you don't think this is prominent, guys, let me assure you, most of the Christians who you will talk to will tell you this is more frequent than you would imagine. Uh, my, one of my first jobs in ministry is I was a youth pastor. Um, and as a youth pastor, I can tell you, it is absolutely heartbreaking to see year in and year out kids make 
these commitments and say, I want to follow Jesus, I want to, I, want to, I want to obey God, I want to be a Christian, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior, and then to see that four, six months down the line, life gets hard and they turn away from it. Now, this isn't limited to young believers, but it certainly is something I see, I saw frequently there. And what I suspect is that many people who consider themselves followers of Jesus have never considered that this is part of what it means to actually follow him. In other words, pain comes with the position. I don't uh, see, however, I don't believe that the hardship that comes with this. So Jesus said, look, if you're going to follow me, it's going to get hard. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, which is what brings us to our message for today. You see, uh, the, what, what our passage is going to show us this morning as it discusses the subject of suffering is that even if you notice, it'll be bookended at the beginning and the end with rejoice, a call to have joy even in the midst of suffering. So I like to do this. Before we get into the passage this morning, I want to give you the big idea up front. So if you remember nothing else this week, I want you to remember this from the lesson. In order to advance in our faith, we must be willing to suffer for it. Let me say that again. In order to advance in our faith, we must be willing to suffer for it. No pain, no gain. The idea still rings true. The path of spiritual maturity is marked with suffering. But man, are the results worth it. Man, is the journey worth it. And this brings us to our passage today. So we've been going through the book of Colossians. If you would, please look to me uh, to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. We're going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. And I don't always do it, but it fits well with the passage today. If you would, please stand for the reading of the word. Colossians chapter 1, we read. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory Of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay. So, where we just left off, Paul has explained himself 
as being a servant or minister. Minister just means servant of the gospel. And then Paul opens up this section with a really tough statement, frankly. Uh, uh, This is the weirdest thing he's going to say this entire message, and he starts out with it. Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Right out of the gate, this sounds weird, guys. I'm going to tell you that right now. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Did Paul just say that the cross was somehow not enough? That there's something Jesus that was, there's something Jesus's death wasn't sufficient for? I mean, if you were with us, wasn't that literally the point of last week's sermon? That in order to uh, everything we need to advance in faith is ours in Jesus. How then can Paul say there's something lacking in Christ's sacrifice or Christ's afflictions? Well, a couple things. First off, in your own Bible reading, when you come across a passage like this, you should first realize that the author did not just immediately forget what they said two sentences ago, okay? So if he just said, Christ is enough, Christ is sufficient, uh, which he just did, said, God is reconciling the world to himself in, through Jesus, he didn't just throw that out the next sentence later. So we must conclude that whatever Paul sees as lacking in is not pertaining to the forgiveness of sins and being made right with God that he just spoke of. Then, we have to look who was served by these afflictions Paul is talking about. We see that it was for the sake of the body of Christ, i.e. the church. So, somehow, Paul's suffering is benefiting the church. And then next, we have to see what it is and what is meant to be accomplished through this suffering. So, to what end? Why? What does this suffering accomplish? And in verse 25 and 26... It lets us know that Paul was made a minister in order that, as he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So in other words, God is making known that his plans for salvation were always through the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul is then part of, and his suffering is part of, unveiling this great mystery to the world, as he puts it. Now... To understand this idea of the gospel as a mystery, you need to understand a concept. And so I need to give you a little bit of a a theological, a dictionary term here. The word is progressive revelation. Uh, The idea of progressive revelation here, guys, is is that as the story of the Bible goes on, we begin to, uh, there's a little mystery, a story that begins to unfold. And we know more of God the more we see of his revelation. So, To some extent, if you've been with us when we've been studying through Genesis, we've already seen that. Let me give you an example of how this looks in Genesis. In it, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, refused to submit to God as Lord, and as a result, sin, suffering, and death entered the world. However, even in Genesis 3, God promises that there will be a descendant or a seed of the woman, as he says, who will crush the head of the serpent. There's no other details given there. Simply that God has a solution to the problem of sin, suffering, death, and it will come through a descendant of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, as we progress through Genesis, we find that this promised seed, this descendant, actually comes through the lineage of a man named Abraham. And as we continue through the Bible, we find that this seed will uh, come from the line of one of Israel's greatest kings, a man named David. 
Now, this knowledge that it would come through a royal lineage led many to assume that when this Savior came into the world, he would be a great king like David and restore the fallen kingdom of Israel to its former glories. However, as we arrive at the New Testament, we find that the the identity of this saving king is revealed, but it is not revealed to be a conquering political figure, which is at least not the way we might expect it, but rather through a child of a very common upbringing, a man named Jesus. And as we continue further still, we realize that this Jesus would usher in God's great kingdom, not through taking an earthly office, but rather by giving himself as a sacrifice to remove the guilt of God's people. Fast forward a little bit. And even further still, we discover that God's plans were not limited to this little area called Israel, but rather were for the whole world, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles are simply a word to describe the non-Jewish world. So you see, God's plans for salvation are revealed progressively over time, not unlike how you might think the events of an Agatha Christie novel or something out of Sherlock Holmes. It's a mystery that unfolds as God reveals more and more of it to us. This is the work of progressive revelation. So in some way, Paul's suffering is also, as he reasons, part of that process of God revealing the mystery of the gospel to the world. So what of God's mysterious plans is Paul revealing here? Verse 27, we read, To them God shows, that is to the Gentile, uh, to, or to the Jews, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. We learn that the purpose is to show the most magnificent part of the mystery is in fact Jesus Christ himself, the one who suffers and dies on our behalf, and that Paul's efforts are to, are to, in doing so, are to present the saints, as he says, mature in Christ. We learn then that, uh, so, so Paul's job here, Paul's suffering, leads to the spread of, and the unveiling of the mystery that God's plans for salvation are found in Jesus, and in doing so, it also builds up the church. It builds up believers. It makes us more spiritually mature. So how then does suffering lead to our maturity and Jesus being proclaimed, we might ask? And the answer is found in the mystery itself. You see, if Jesus suffered, follow with me on this one, if Jesus suffered in order to secure a people redeemed and cleansed from their sins, then it stands to reason that he might also grow them spiritually and make that message known by similar means, specifically suffering. So this isn't the only place in Scripture we find this same idea. Let me give you some other examples. It's all over the Bible. James, in James chapter 1, puts it this way. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness, steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may become perfect and complete. That word perfect literally can mean maturity, lacking in nothing. So James is saying here is that through various trials, we actually grow in our faith and mature and develop as followers of Jesus. Let me give you another example. 
The Apostle Peter speaks of this when referring to the devil's temptations in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, resist him, that's Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So through temptation and suffering, God is said to establish our faith. And then one more example. The man himself, Jesus, said it this way. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, Jesus himself promised that his followers would have hardship. So what I believe Paul is saying here, guys, in essence, is that his own suffering is an example of what must be done in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and to be brought into full maturity of faith. We have to be willing to suffer for the cause. Now look, to be honest with you guys, I worry that churches have lost a theology of suffering. As a result, what I believe has happened is we've come to expect that everything is just sunshine and rainbows in life once you become a Christian. By doing so and telling that to others, however, I believe we do a danger, and we, we are in danger of selling ourselves and others an unbiblical perspective on life. I believe this is why many people leave the faith. They didn't know that hard times would come with this life, despite the fact that Jesus himself and all his disciples knew this and taught it openly. So hear me on this one, guys. The Bible doesn't teach that following Jesus will make everything easy and pleasant. Instead, it promises that the reward that God has in store for us is absolutely worth the pain we might experience. Let me give you some examples. I just told you, uh, listed you a couple different apostles. James and Peter, we're reading from Paul. Do you know what happened to these guys? Let me tell you. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was stabbed to death, as was Matthew. James and Stephen were both stoned. And Paul, who wrote this letter and the bulk of the New Testament, was beheaded. See, men did everything in their power to stop the message of Jesus from spreading. But consider this. Did it work? Not a chance. It failed miserably. See, through martyrs like these... And many others, the gospel continued to spread throughout the entire world. In fact, it's still the case today, guys. Uh, So, for example, in places like India, North Korea, and Egypt, just to name a few, Christians are jailed, tortured, and killed because of their faith in Jesus. And we might ask, well, is the Christian church shrinking in those areas? Quite the opposite. It's spreading like wildfire. Make no mistake. God's plan is to grow you as a man and woman of God and to spread his message throughout the whole world, not in spite of his of suffering, but through it. Let me say that again. Not in spite of suffering, but through it. Which raises another question. If God's plan involves suffering, how on earth can we endure it? Who would walk into that, right? Like, how are we actually going to manage And Paul includes here a few reasons for how and why we can actually endure suffering. 
First and foremost, as we've already shown, it is God's plan for us, and in that there is comfort and even joy. Verse 20, back to verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Not I put up with my sufferings, I rejoice in them. This too is a mystery that many miss. By being rejected by men, we are given proof that God approves of us. Acts tells us an interesting story, guys. See, the disciples, it's a very early on in the Christian church, and the disciples are spreading the news of Jesus. They're going about uh, telling everybody about this idea that the Savior has come, that it's this man, Jesus, and then by trusting in him and his sacrifice, they can be made right with God. This upsets the religious elite of the day, who then arrest them and have them beaten. And right before they let them go, they, say, they let them know, don't tell anyone about this ever again. I don't want to hear the name Jesus spoken of you ever again. And they kick them out. You know how those disciples respond? Let me explain to you. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, there's comfort in our suffering because it reminds us that God has counted us worthy. It's a sign of his approval. And second, suffering binds us together in a common cause. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 2, that he has struggles for the churches so that, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Suffering increases the love we have for each other. Keep in mind, guys, why do people harm people? Why do people threaten harm to people? They do that to break us up. They do this to keep us from doing something. The belief is that once we have faced some sort of pain, or at least the threat of pain, we will give each other up. Here again, the plans that we would think would stop the message of Jesus backfire gloriously. The thing which we thought that which others thought would divide us is actually what unites us together. So when you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? If you and I have both suffered for the same faith, it tells me something. One, it tells me that we have a shared love for Jesus. And two, it also tells me about you that we have a shared love for our neighbors as well. Why? Because it shows that we will not back down from sharing with them the only message which can actually save them. That's real love. That's what knits our hearts together. And then third, as you and I suffer for the cause of Christ, our relationship with Jesus deepens. Paul writes that he suffers, that we would, as he puts it in verse 2, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, he says, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for although I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. So in this process of suffering, we are more assured of the truth of the gospel. I love how Paul explains it, that full assurance and full knowledge all leads us back to the same source, Jesus Christ himself. Here's the truth. No matter how, might we, how much we might suffer, guys, we have never outsuffered Jesus. He experienced rejection, pain, and even death, though he himself was sinless. You and I, not so much. But it goes further than that. 
For at the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate suffering. God the Father turned his face away from him. And so at the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to feel that rejection. What that tells me is that when you and I undergo pain or suffering for the sake of Jesus, we also should remind ourselves, Jesus suffered far greater for me. Paul then warns the believers not to be fooled by people who can't understand this mystery. He cautions them not to be fooled by what he calls plausible arguments, meaning the arguments might sound good on on surface level, right? You would think that. So the idea, and I get it, the idea does make sense. Of course God doesn't want you to suffer. What sense does that make? Wouldn't God want everything to be easy and peaceful for you all the time? Wouldn't God want your life to be nothing but constant prosperity? It sounds reasonable, but it's wrong. Remember, God's plans are a mystery, so don't be surprised when some people can't figure the mystery out. And don't be dissuaded by that. See, we end this section with Paul's hope. He began with rejoicing and ends with rejoicing. Verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, for, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Through this process, you will become a more mature Christian, disciplined and firm in your faith. It'll be hard, but as you come through it, you'll be stronger, grounded in the hope, faith, and love of Jesus. Paul looked forward to seeing that in the churches. He looked forward to seeing their maturity. And to be honest with you guys, I look forward to seeing that in us as well. I look forward to where God takes us from in the days and years ahead. But I'll tell you something else. God looks forward to seeing that growth in you as well. Let me tell you a secret as a dad. All good fathers want to see their children become mature adults. And they rejoice when they see that day. God himself is no exception. So, knowing full well what's in store for you, you have to decide, am I still in? And my desire, guys, isn't to dissuade you from following Jesus, but rather, as Paul writes, that you might attain all the riches, the riches, he calls it, of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That is to say, I want you to grow deeper in your knowledge of Jesus, deeper in your relationship with him, because it's worth it. It is so worth it. But you have to understand it won't be easy along the way. But here's the good news. You don't have to do it alone. You have God himself who gives you his own spirit to guide and direct you and to comfort you. You have God's word which is a lamp guiding you in a, like a lamp guiding you in a dark place. You have prayer, a direct line to God's ear. You can go to him with anything. And you have us, the church, groups of brothers and sisters in the faith who will walk with you through the pain and suffering and hardship that sometimes comes with faith. Most of all, you have Jesus. We have one who has suffered on our behalf so that we might experience the joy that comes with knowing God and being called a child of God. And that is a beautiful thing. See, in order to advance in your faith, you have to be willing to suffer for it. But that suffering is temporary at best, guys. It will not last forever. What you have in Christ 
no one can take away from you. To know Jesus is therefore to know, to know and trust in him is Lord, is Savior, is to know the secret to life's greatest mystery. And there's more to this mystery still to be had. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There is so much to rejoice in, even now in Jesus. But there's still more to come. The story gets better. There are mysteries God has yet to reveal to us completely. Greater joy to be had. So don't lose hope and don't give up the faith. With that said, bow your heads, let's pray.